God's greatest compliment to you and to me, to us, is you are light, you're not darkness. Welcome to the Athens First UMC Sermons Podcast. I'm Sarah Lawing, Director of Online Productions. We hope you'll enjoy this weekly resource. You've heard our scripture lesson several times already this morning. It is printed in your bulletin, I believe, and it's very short. So it seems appropriate that we would read it together. Uh, it's the second verse of the ninth chapter of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Would you join me? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. It's interesting when you take something out of context. You may have had an occasion where someone repeated back what you said at some point in time. Now you hoped that they were accurate in that, but you accepted that as, as a fact. But it didn't sound like something that you would say because it was taken out of context. We've all had that happen to us. I talk a lot. Uh, I'm paid to talk a lot. And that's kind of a scary thing. Uh, because sometimes people will say something I said in a sermon and I just, it sounds kind of bad. And I hope that somehow it's surrounded by context that gives it some life. To really understand what Isaiah is saying, we must understand the context in which he was saying it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That was spoken in the midst of a terrible time in the life of the nation. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken over by the superpower of the day, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were not like the Greeks and the Romans. They did not come to your territory to try to make it better. They did not come to enculturate you. They came to dominate you and just to take everything you had. They were not a particularly cultured and refined people. So they had ravaged the northern kingdom of Israel and King Ahaz, who was king of the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, looked at that and thought, we're next. And so he decided to try to pay them off rather than subject the nation to the cruelty of what Israel had experienced. So he began to pay them taxes. He began to pay them off. And so Judah was not ravaged, but Judah suffered tremendously because they were characterized by deep and desperate poverty. It was a terrible time in the life of the nation of Judah. And in that context, Isaiah declares the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Christians 800 years later applied this passage to Christmas. They believed the fulfillment of this passage occurred when the light of the world was born. When the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. This passage has been applied over and over again to periods of darkness. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes, It was always winter, but never Christmas. It was always winter, but never Christmas. As he he used those words to describe that period. I feel like we've been living in a period of winter, but it was never Christmas. 
The pandemic has been an unusual time in each and every life. One I could never have anticipated. I confess to you today my ignorance. I don't find great pleasure in that, but it's not a secret to you. And so I confess to you once again my ignorance when we initially began this journey of the pandemic and the word was everyone shelter in place. I didn't really know exactly what sheltering in place meant. I mean, can I never leave my house? Can I go out in the yard? Can I go get gas for my car? I remember going to a car dealer uh, to conduct some business, and I was a little surprised by why they were open if we were sheltering in place. And they said, well, we're considered unessential that people need automobile transportation. So the longer we sheltered in place, the more that I learned about it. But the strangest, the strangest part of the sheltering in place period was this. This. We were closed. The church was locked. And no one was up here day after day after day. Sometimes I would drive up here and walk the halls and it was weird because nobody had been in here uh, for quite some time. So there were things that happened uh, during this period I think that were totally unexpected to us. We never imagined that we would be functioning in the way we were not functioning uh, during the pandemic. And to that situation, to those circumstances, Isaiah declares the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Were you able to find light in the midst of darkness? What does light do? Light enables us to see. Darkness limits sight. We all know that. I woke up early one morning this week when I had an early appointment and I was trying to look at my phone to find out what time it was. And I reached out to my phone in the darkness. I mean, I couldn't see my hands in front of my face. And as I reached out and pillaged around for my phone with Penny asleep next to me and the dog asleep over in the corner, I was anxiously trying not to wake anyone up. And as I reached around, I knocked over my Yeti, which had water in it, and it hit the hardwood floor and went boom. I was hoping against hope that the cover had not come off to dump all the water out. And so I hurriedly tried to get down on the floor to find out where it was without turning on the light. And as I did, I dropped my cell phone and it went boom on the hardwood floor. And by then, Penny said, just turn the lamp on, Chuck. We're, <clears throat> we're all awake. It's hard to see in the dark. It's hard to see when you can't see. It's a difficult thing. I don't think that's what Isaiah is talking about, but I think we all know that we need light to be able to see in the darkness. And I think what Isaiah is talking about is spiritual blindness, which I suffer from as well. Sometimes if we are not careful, we can have a kind of spiritual arrogance. We can have an arrogance about we know, what we know and, and who we are, and we can look at the world if we're not careful from, from an arrogant position. We can, 
we can be resentful and try to justify resentment when we know that we really can't do that no matter what the circumstances are. But we can still fall into a kind of spiritual blindness at times where we're resentful and we're okay with it. Now, we don't stay okay with it, but for a period we might. We can live in a period of denial where we're just living in some denial about things around us. Denial of who God is calling us to be and who we actually are and the distance between those two. That's spiritual blindness and that is what Isaiah is talking about. A light has come to shine in the midst of that kind of spiritual denial. Darkness limits vision. Not only does it limit sight, it limits vision. The church, the church of Isaiah's day had lost its vision. It was living through a desperate time and it did not see a lot of hope out there. It saw despair out there. Some of you have heard of the U.S. gymnast Simone Biles. Anybody, does that, if that doesn't ring a bell, I'm going to be really embarrassed. Not of me, but of you, okay? But, uh, she's an athlete who seems to be well ahead of her time. Every once in a while you, you see that. Just someone who is probably 10 years ahead of everybody else. And so recently she blew up YouTube, as they say, because she did this Yurchenko double. Yurchenko barely did a single. And so a Yurchenko double had never even been attempted by a woman. No one had ever done it, tried it, much less completed it. So she completed this Yurchenko double. And when they talked with her about, you know, how do you, how do you attempt, how do you prepare yourself to do something that no one has even tried, that no one's even made the effort to try? And she said, in my mind... I envisioned myself doing it. I, I allowed my imagination to move me into a place where I began to believe I could do it, and then I began to work on it. Darkness limits that kind of vision. That sort of hopelessness, that sort of we can't, limits the vision that we have. I listened this week as someone talked about time travel and how they thought that one day it might be possible. Not like we see it on the movies. Not like that. But, but in another way. Time travel. And they asked, they took a survey, they took a poll of whether you would prefer to go into the future or you would prefer to go into the past. And 53% of the people responded they would go into the future and 40% of the people responded they would go into the past. That encouraged me, quite frankly, because that means more people than others are saying, well, what's next? What are we living into? Instead of, oh, it's scary out there and I think we're all going to hate it and it's going to a horrible place, so I just want to go back. Now, if you would like to time travel back into the past, I would too. I'm not suggesting to you I wouldn't do that and wouldn't try that if I could. But I was encouraged that the vision of what might be, of what could be, was more of a driving principle in people's life than what has been and what was.
I heard someone say this week, never be surprised by evil and never be paralyzed by despair. What happened in Isaiah's time is that they were not so much surprised by evil, but they were paralyzed by despair. Sometimes we live in such a, such a hopeless place that we find ourselves immobile as a result of the despair that, that we are feeling. Never be surprised by evil. It's a part of our world. It's a part of our life. We know that. The Bible talks a great deal about it. But the Bible also says the worst things are never the last things. The worst things are never the last things. They just aren't. We're going somewhere better. And whatever position you're in now, whatever you're experiencing now, as terrible as it might be, as heartbreaking as it might be, please be mindful that the worst things are never the last things. Easter tells us that. Death does not have the final word. That's not the last thing. Life is the last thing. So, darkness limits sight. It limits vision, but light comes. And light shines in the darkness, and as the Scripture says, the darkness cannot overcome it. God's greatest compliment to you and to me, to us, is you are light. You're light. You're not darkness. You are light. But what do we have to do or need to do to be able to be as much light as we possibly can? I was reading something from Oswald Chambers this week, and here's what he writes. The great Word of God to us is abandon. When God brings us to the venture, take it. The great Word of God to us is abandon. When when God brings us to the venture, take it. We must hear that as individuals, and we must hear that collectively as a church. When God takes us to the venture, when God brings us to the moment, uh, take it. To be light, we must abandon things. We must abandon excess. I read this week that consumption of alcohol is up during the pandemic that we're drinking more. We're drinking more than we have in quite some time. And I think, obviously, that's pandemic-related. There's also a book out now called Hooked. Have you seen it? It's a book about junk food. And he, the author contends that junk food in America is more dangerous than crack cocaine in America. That junk food is killing so many more than crack cocaine is. You see, I have an excess problem when it comes to junk food. I'll confess my sin this morning. I have that problem. And if I'm going to be light, there must be a way to abandon some of the excess. Let's talk about something besides donuts and bourbon. <laughs> Let's talk about worry. 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 It's like a rocking chair, isn't it? 
something to do, but it gets us nowhere. Worry has become the official emotion of our day, has it not? Henry Nowen says this, Worry causes us to be all over the place, but seldom at home. Worry causes us to be all over the place, but seldom at home. And yet we all know there is an excess of worry and it's going to be impossible to be light as fully and possibly as we can if worry dominates who we are. There's an excess of worry. And if we're dreaming of a greater possibility of who we can become, that excess needs to go. What about fear? Uh, people say that this is the, the biggest fear that they have, standing up here and uh, talking in front of you. You know, the biggest fear of this is when it falls flat. The biggest fear is when I say something that I thought was funny when I was preparing and it's not funny. And so I say it and no one even smiles, much less laughs, right? That, that's terrible. That is a terrible experience. So in order to kind of battle that fear, this is the truth, but I never tell people where I'm from. And I never tell them that I serve a church. And I certainly never tell them the church I serve, so you're safe. <laughs> but, but I have before, and I got this from, from a comedian who said, you know, getting up in front of people and telling jokes when nobody laughs is... That's pretty bad. And then you begin to be heckled. At least that doesn't happen in church. You heckle me on Monday with your emails, but you don't heckle me in front of everybody, and I appreciate that uh, very much. But sometimes, like, I hadn't been in the hospital in a long time. They won't let you come. But, but there have been times, there have been occasions when I would, you know, go to Atlanta. I wouldn't do it at Athens Regional or St. Mary's. But I would go to Atlanta, and I'd be at Emory, or I would be at Piedmont, or... One of those, that's usually the two that I go to the most. And I would get on the elevator and there would be people on there that I didn't know. Sometimes I'd just start to sing. <laughs> and it would be kind of cringeworthy, you know what I mean? It'd be, but it would help me stand up here in front of you and talk. Because it's a lot more cringeworthy to say something in front of you and you just look at me. It's even worse when you doze off. And it's even worse when you lie down in the pew. You know what I mean? And so sometimes I put myself in situations that are sort of cringeworthy so that I can kind of overcome those feelings that you have when you stand up in front of people and talk. Fear can be paralyzing. And an excess of fear prevents us from being light in darkness. Sometimes we won't take the chance because it makes us a little bit uneasy. We have a shot, but we don't really like the shot we have. We want a better shot. And so we don't take the shot because mm, it makes us 
squirm a little bit. We have some fear associated with it. And so we just sort of say, not the right time. It may not be the right time, but sometimes it is. So I try to prepare myself for those moments by suffering your rejection. So thank you for rejecting me. It allows me to be braver. There's an excess of a disease that's spreading. It's always been here. The Scripture says it was here from the very, very beginning. And the disease is the disease of me. It's spreading. In other words, it's when we look, we look through these eyes of ours and here's the questions we're asking. What's in it for me? I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, like I want it, at the time I want it. And so we move through, and those are the questions we have. What is in it for me? I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And I don't want it any other way. And the disease of me is a terminal illness. We make distinctions between a cold and cancer. We know that a cold is typically not a terminal illness, that a heart attack can be, that a cancer can be. And so we understand the distinctions between a cold and cancer. Disease of me is cancer for the church. We all know that. We're part of a community of faith. But when you look at the pie chart of a church, if the larger piece of the pie is the consumer and the smaller piece of the pie is the servant, that church is in trouble. Those churches die. They're dying all over the place right now as we speak. Because churches sometimes become comfortable with the wrong questions. What do you have for me? I want what I want. I want what I want when I want it. I want what I want how I want it. If that's the overriding conversation in the life of the body of Christ, that's terminal. That's what kills churches. We think, well, they had to change their location. That didn't kill the church. Well, you know, the, the circumstances around the church changed and they just died off. That didn't kill the church. What kills the church is the disease of me. And, and we all suffer from it from time to time. But if the conversation in the body of Christ is not about the body of Christ if it's not about the mission, if it's not about the relationships that we have with each other, if it's not about us, but it's about me, then there's a problem. And so the conversations, the piece of the pie, must be much more servant than it is consumer. And if it's not, I don't care what church it is and what location it's in and what denomination it is, if not any denomination. I don't care who the preacher is. I don't care how beautiful the building is. That church is going to die. We have an excess in our culture and in our society of this disease of me. And there's too much of it. 
And so the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's promise. There's possibility. There's a future. And we live into it. A new day is dawning. Thanks be to God. That's what Isaiah is declaring in the midst of terrible circumstances. A new day is dawning. And when that new day dawns, what comes with it? Light. 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 Today, we celebrate life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The United Methodist Church has an open communion table. That means anybody sitting in a pew can participate in communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a part of this body of Christ. You may be from out of town and you're passing through Athens. It happens all the time and you're welcome to the table here. I love that about the Methodist Church. It's an open table and the invitation is an open invitation. I'm glad you're here. You... You make my heart grateful. Some of you are watching online, and I'm grateful for that. We continue to develop that so that it will be as good as it can possibly be. We're learning each and every week, and I hope six months from now, it will be better than it is today. And those folks who are unable, who are shut in, and unable to come here to this physical place on Sunday morning, I'm so glad that we can still connect. That makes my heart glad. So welcome. And hear my invitation to be here every Sunday with us through that camera. But some of you who are watching today are physically able to be here. You are in your home and you're watching. And it's easy to get used to that, isn't it? After a while. It is. I understand it. I never got to do it, but I can still understand it. I get it. I mean, you know, I've had folks tell me, you know, Chuck, I tell you, I, you know, we first got started with online. I wasn't crazy about it, but I'm telling you, I've discovered some, you know, some things about it that I do like. I mean, I, I'm in my pajamas. I'm sitting in a really good chair and not an uncomfortable pew. I didn't have to get three kids dressed and off to church. I'm not having to dress up and I'm having my donut and I'm having my coffee. And you come on and you don't completely ruin it. <laughs> but I kind of like it. I get it. I'm glad we have this so that when you're on vacation, 
When you're away this summer, you can still experience worship with your church family. I celebrate that. But if you're sitting in your den right now, or your living room, or your kitchen, and you're enjoying this time, I'm glad you are. But I want you to hear my invitation. I want you to come back. I want you to be in a pew. Because there's nothing like this. It doesn't get any better than this. And I can assure you, I've never talked to a shut-in who didn't want to be here. The day came when they could no longer come. But they always yearned, they always longed to be here. So this is my invitation to you. Please come on back. It's time to come home. It's time to be with your family again in a way that blesses all of us. So if you're watching today, and I hope you're enjoying the experience, I hope you also hear my personal invitation to you. I want to see you. I want to worship with you in person. I want the pews of this place to be full once again. I'm encouraged because last March I stood here and no one was in a pew. We've come a long way. But we've got miles to go before we sleep, right? So come on home, brothers and sisters. Come on home. Thanks for listening. To listen to more sermons, read past devotions, or look up opportunities on how to connect, visit us at AthensFirstUMC.org. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following us on Instagram or Facebook at AthensFirstUMC. Oh,